Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Enjoy yoga? Please stop. You're promoting white supremacy. Srina Gandhi, a professor of religious studies at Michigan State, argued in a recent piece that, quote, the explosion of yoga studios, yoga video, apps, yoga pants, and other yoga swag over the past two decades is evidence, you guessed it, of systemic racism built on, quote, the labor of black people and people of the global south. Kathy Rue is the founding publisher of Catalina Magazine. More than that, she is our guide to the changing landscape of 2018 and the deepest recesses of the lunatic left. And we're glad to see you as always, Kathy. So yoga is racist. How is that? Well, according to this article, many white people who do yoga, and it's mostly white people who do yoga, so a uh, few of them understand the culture, the history, and the religion behind yoga, and they're simply enjoying it for the physical aspects of it. So they're not truly understanding yoga and what it goes back to, and um, they need to if they want to appreciate it, and if not, they're simply giving into this uh, viewpoint of white supremacy, according to this Professor. Huh. So if, if yoga is racist, is hot yoga more racist or less? <laughs> all Western yoga is racist, according to this author, according to this professor. All Western yoga. So yoga that is practiced in India has nothing to do with the yoga that's practiced in uh, the Western world. Huh. So, what about yeah. Pilates? Are those safe? Pilates was not discussed in the article. It's Western yoga as a whole. It's being practiced by white people, white women, upper class, middle class people, Ooh. not minorities, Ooh. not Latinos, not immigrants. Ooh. Yeah, so this is, this is a white um, sport, a white well, that's, activity. Well, that right there is suspect, okay? So, you know, call the police. What about Taekwondo? I mean, by these standards, that might be banned, right? Well, by this author's standards, perhaps, but she really has a problem with the yoga in industrial, I think it was, uh, yoga industrialization, industrial complex. That's what she called it, the yoga industrial complex. So, that, so, if so it's maybe wrong, Taekwondo falls under that. If it's wrong for people in the West to practice yoga, is it wrong for people in the rest of the world to use the Internet, which was created here? part of our cultural legacy? Well, I think we understand the culture of the internet and it doesn't go back to the British colonizing India and what the Indians had to do to uh, introduce them to yoga and show them that their culture was actually intelligent and that was part of the yoga movement and that's how it came to the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. So, okay. yeah, so the internet would not. Um, the internet this. would not. No, what no. about like democracy? I mean, that was invented by the Greeks in the West, right. basis of Western civilization. No, then again, no, no, no. Yoga was a way for the Indians to show their colonizers that they were intelligent and that they had this wonderful... <laughs> Where do you read your history? That's this, totally this wrong. Is what this, this Yoga is what this predates the British saying. by quite a bit. Okay, but so I, I just wanted to be interested. How many people who are into yoga in the United States do you think voted for Donald Trump? Oh, well, the author didn't touch upon that, but... But what's your... I mean, as someone who's very familiar with non-Trump voters, would you say maybe 1% of people who practice yoga voted Trump, or is that too high? According to the author, uh, many middle and upper class white women practice yoga. So those people who fit into that category uh, and are Trump supporters voted for Trump. So are you struck by the fact that that series of descriptors, upper middle class, white, like that's kind of the whole argument on the left now. So anything that has those words attached is just bad just because, and anything that doesn't is superior to that. 
uh, yeah, according to this article, those are the people who practice yoga and uh, do not understand immigrants and minorities and what they're going through and perhaps have more privilege and are able to experience yoga and other things that other groups cannot experience. So last question, if in a multicultural society, which we live in, and, right. and I'm, I'm for the basic principle, which is there are cool things about other cultures and you should enjoy them. Mm -hmm. When do the rules change? So we live in a multicultural society, but you're not allowed to enjoy cool things from other cultures, or if you do, you have to feel guilty about it. How uh, does that work? Well, the author said, by no means don't stop doing yoga, but if you do it, understand that you're only understanding an eighth of it, that there's so much more to yoga. So understand oh. what people went through to introduce this to you from their culture to your culture. So have an appreciation. Don't just take advantage of it and buy the yoga gear and take advantage of this wonderful tradition that was brought to you by another culture. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I haven't tested it, but I suspect downward dog is harder to enjoy if you're hating yourself while you do it, wouldn't you think? I don't think anyone would hate themselves. They would just know more <laughs> about the point, it. They should know more about downward more dog. More self-loathing. Kathy, it's great to see you as always. You really are our Sherpa, and we appreciate it. Sorry, Sherpa, different culture. No offense intended. Namaste means hello. Namaste means I'm bowing to you. It's a customary greeting. It's a respectful salutation. It has become a bastardized metaphor for spiritualism. It's white people doing yoga, throwing up prayer hands and chanting Om, and saying Namaste like their third eyes are being opened and they can peer directly into the nucleus of spirituality. You need to know this. Because of your skin tone, people will ask you where you're from. If you tell them Bristol, they'll ask where your parents are from. When they know you're half Indian, one person will try to impress their knowledge of your culture on you. I can't sleep. It's 2am and a party is raging across the road. The flat is rented out to students on a regular basis. Your mother is sensibly sleeping with the earplugs in. I can hear you purring in the next room. I know that in four hours' time, I have to drive you to London to take you to see your dada and your foyer and your fuwa, to spend time with the Indian part of your family, to say namaste to Indian cousins, aunties, and uncles. I'm driving, so I need the sleep. It transpires that the reason the party is so loud is because someone on the top floor of the house is leaning out of his window, smoking and bellowing a conversation down to the person at street level, which, due to the peculiarities of the house we live opposite, is about four stories worth of shouting at 2am. This is silly, I think. It's Friday night, sure, but it's a residential street. I may have been these kids once, but now? I'm in my 30s. I'm a man of family now. I'm a man of red wine and Netflix. I'm a man of night sin and community cohesion. I get it. I get what life's about. It's about living like your actions affect the people you don't know, as well as the people you do. I've done questionable shit. Pissed in places I shouldn't have. Left detritus for poor working souls to have to clean up the morning after. Shout scream songs at the top of my voice, running down streets where families lived, being oblivious to the rest of the world, carrying on like there's something out there in the rest of the world for me to interact with. 
Your mother reminds me of this the next morning when I tell her what happens next. I tell her that I don't want to live with the thought that I'm intolerant of other people's intolerance. I walk out of the house just as the conversation bellowed across four stories wraps up and the man on the street level leaves to the sound of his friend hoping he gets home safely. I approach the steps to their stoop. I notice in the shadows a boy and a girl are sitting in the doorway of the main door ajar, smoking. Excuse me, I ask. Do you mind continuing your party inside? Ja bless, the girl in the doorway says. Namaste, she repeats over me. I say it again. I change the words to become more clear, more forceful. Can you please continue your party inside? Namaste, she says again. I hear the boys stifle a laugh. Namaste, they both say. Namaste, 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 namaste. Until I'm drowned out. I'm standing under a street lamp wearing a white bedtime kurta and lenga pajamas. My skin is bleached out by the fluorescence of the yellow lamp. There's probably no way they can tell I'm Indian from the lighting. It's dickery for dickery's sake. The bellowing man leaning out of his window asks if the music's too loud. I look up to him, the voice of reason, and I say, Again, can you please continue your party inside? Namaste, 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 the girl says. I shout something wounded, along the lines of, Oh, this is classy. Passive-aggressive, without a target. I go back inside and I lie in bed, staring at the ceiling watching the arrows of passing car headlights pierce cracks in the curtains. Eventually the party quietens. My mind doesn't. I'm rolling in a quagmire of ways to deal with this slight. Beyond writing, Namaste dickheads on a placard and placing it in my bedroom window, I don't know what to do. The house residents go home for the summer, having moved in and warmed the house to celebrate. Any call for an apology I ask for come the autumn will be muted in months too late. I walk past an art space that's part bar club, part sustainable restaurant, part hot desking for freelance artists, and part dance studio. They host morning raves and yoga classes there. Most mornings, the steps are daubed with hippies wearing Om and Ganesha parachute pants. Their hair and dreadlocks, bindis mark out the third eyes in the middle of their foreheads. They tie their dogs up to the bicycle racks using scratchy sari material and they enter the yoga studio to be Natraja and Ashtanga geniuses and salute the sun and greet and say goodbye to each other with a solid, heartfelt Namaste. Namaste, one of them says to me one morning as I walk down the road listening to Jay Paul swinging my two-tier tiffin up and down. She offers me prayer hands as I pass and I see her mouthing something. I take my headphones off. Jay Paul straight out of Mumbai is at its crescendo. Namaste, she says. I grimace. Hi, I reply. Namaste, she replies, and raises her prayer hands to touch her bowing forehead. She has faded henna on her fingers. It just means hello, I say. She looks at me, confused. Namaste, it just means hello, that's it. Namaste, she says again, and I walk on. I have three voices. I realize this when Nurm and his wife come to visit. You're inside your mother's stomach. Your involvement in this story comes just after your mother tells Nurm and his wife that she is pregnant 
we are expecting. In his excitement, the typically expressive Nam gestures wildly with his hands and knocks his pint of lager all over your mum's stomach. All over you. It's funny, but it's not. The way Nam and I interact is an intersection of our Gujarati upbringing, our East London socialisation, and acknowledgement that there's a white person in the room who needs to keep up. Yes, bruv, we talk like Goras be listening, innit? Fart off fart, we wipe away the point, spill might, while Katie gets fresh again. We call each other Bevakoofs, cuss out each other's pronunciation, bruv. We greet each other with Kemcho might, where cursive glottal stopping syllable swapping rhythmic piece of anarchic remixed English. Talking to him for the three hours he and his wife are in town, I feel like I'm with my peoples again. When I go home, it takes me a while to get my voice back. It's an effort to type this way, in a way that's palatable to Westerners, in a way that's markedly different from my speaking voice, because my speaking voice holds rhythms that weren't made in the West. My mum had three voices. She had a white people phone voice, her goodlish talk-at-home voice, and her relative's voice. I have three voices too. I talk in goodlish, my normal voice, and white literary party. I... Don't know whether my normal voice, where I feel most comfortable, most safe, even feels like me anymore. I've I've splintered into personas. This is the trick of living publicly online with increasing watch and scrutiny by others. When I first started out on Twitter, I had ten odd followers, all people I knew in the real world. People I could be myself with. As my following increased, I had to become less of myself and more of the public perception of me as the writer. And it made me lose track of who I was and what voice I spoke in. Nowadays, I ensure that whenever I tweet about literary things, I add the odd fam, bruv, cuz, or in it, just to ensure the execution of my thought or praise comes with the necessary rooting to where I'm from. I'm a hip-hop fan, and as much as I agree that it's not where you're from, it's where you're at, actually, it's where you're from. An agent who has rejected me twice tweets about an impending apocalypse because his intern referred to clothes as garms. This sends me into a shame spiral. I've been using this word in two of my three voices since 1994. I reply to his tweet saying, Slang's more important than proper English, fam. No one talks in proper English, innit? He doesn't reply. I delete my tweet. I know he's still smarting from when I pulled him up on a snarky tweet about diversity in publishing and his ennui towards it. His response was to say that there was a debate of merit worth having. I told him that it wasn't a debate for me. It was my life. I can't change my skin tone. White people debate it. We live it. My conversation with Nurm makes me feel lonely. I watch you in your mum's belly, squirming about, experimenting with spatial awareness, waking up as she and I settle down to bed after the pub. I wonder what voice you'll have, who you'll be, what you'll sound like, and whether you'll have Gujarati reference points or if the extent of your lingual heritage will only be Namaste. I knock on my neighbor's door. I know someone is home because a window at the top of the house is cracked open, and I can just about make out the keep calm and carry on poster. I wait, thinking about my opening line. I don't know whether to be angry or polite and firm, or treat it like it's a joke, like, oh, we're all friends here, like, I know you guys were just sticking around and that's okay, but just know that words have impact or whether to tell them how I feel. One of the many online arguments I've had about the importance of language, how language can hurt, has been about tea. Chai means tea. Chai tea means 
T-T. The number of times you see this on a menu makes you wonder why people can't be bothered to do their research. Like non-bread, too. Bread. Bread. A comedian, Kumail Nanjiani, an avid gamer, once expressed his delight that the Call of Duty series finally set a level in Karachi, the city of his childhood, now one of the top ten most dangerous cities in the world. He was appalled when playing the game to see that all the street signs were in Arabic, not Urdu. He talks about the effort put into making each follicle on each soldier's head stand out, into making their bootlaces bounce as they ran, the millions spent developing this game, and how at no point did anyone decide to Google the language of Pakistan. In Jurassic World, they refer to some pachycephalosaurus dinosaurs as pachys. The pachys are escaping, as one of the techs exclaims. The budget for the movie was $150 million. If I had to place a value on how much people would have to pay me in order to call me a packy, it would be more than 150 million. Words matter. Words are important. The casualness with which someone I'm working with refers to two coloured girls. The casualness with which a person having her photo taken with a nice view and me obscuring the corner of it asks her husband to ensure that he gets one without the Indian in it. The casualness of being on the last train home from London to Bristol in the same car as the bar, listening to two drunk men in their early twenties shout at each other, N-word, we made it! Repeatedly, with excruciating enthusiasm. They're just quoting rap, someone might think. They're drunk, they're harmless, they're being exuberant, and dickish, but exuberant. Language is important. Years before, I sat in an Indian restaurant round the corner. It's called, oh, Calcutta. I found the exclamation mark alarming. The place was owned by a white guy. As I sat with my best friend and his then girlfriend staring at the disco lights, I listened to Kula Shaker saying about Tatva and Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya Jaya. I read the menu. One of the dishes listed was chicken chaddi described as an exotic blend of authentic spices, tomato, and peppers. It sounded so generic. What was an exotic blend? What were the authentic spices? Also, tomato and pepper. These were the biggest tastemakers aside from chicken in the dish. What was chicken chaddi? Also, you know, chaddi means pants. I told my friend and his then-girlfriend. They laughed at the whiteness of it all. <laughs> they said, Cultural misappropriation is hilarious, they said in so many words. I felt mortified for the white guy owner. He had probably been duped by some guy he'd asked for a word that sounded Eastern. Maybe the chef was having a laugh with him. Maybe he was having a joke with his clients. I looked around. Everyone in the restaurant was white. It was a hipster student paradise. The mix of cod, eastern, Britpop, minimal red lighting like a moody Ryan Gosling film, and the prices, it felt like puppetry of food. The biggest crime. Not only was my western's Balti curry now synonymous with my country's cuisine, but now we had white guys aping the food we made to fit in with the white guys. I called the manager over. The chicken chuddy, I said. You know, chuddy means pants, don't you? He laughed. You having me on, right? He replied. It's a specific blend of spices. Nice try. 
It means pants, I repeated. He smiled, itching to get away. I let him. Language is important. The door opens. He stands in front of me, a boy, not yet twenty, wearing a t-shirt that says GEEK on it, in the all caps of shouting pride. He holds a controller for a games console in one hand and a cider in the other. Hello, he says politely, nervously. Namaste, I say, pressing my hands together in prayer. Hello. A car a street away pumps out a bangroo The subwoofer bounces around my eardrum. I shake my head, turn around and head back across the street. Usually, when I leave for work, you're in the window, waving, propped up by your mum. Your smile is free. It doesn't know nuance yet. We should keep it that way. Hi everyone, my name is Essen and this is the Brown History Podcast. The episode today that you just heard was an essay by Nikesh Shukla called Namaste. I actually got that essay from a book of collection of essays called The Good Immigrant, which is also edited by Nikesh Shukla and his essay that he wrote himself is in there too. It's about writers who come in and reflect on race, immigration, otherness. He edited a second book right after that, but the American version. So you can check out both books called The Good Immigrant. He also has a novel called The Boxer. What I really want you guys to check out is that there's this YouTube video. Uh, it's a short film on YouTube. It's called Two Dosas and it stars Himesh Patel who's the lead actor of Danny Boyle's Yesterday and it deserves a lot of credit. When I saw it I was pretty impressed by it. Uh, it should have his own TV show. I don't know. It's really good. It's really really good. It sucks that good work doesn't get acknowledged. This was a really hard essay to create. First of all, it's really hard to find a brown guy to do voice acting. And on top of that, to do a British accent. I live in Canada, so not a lot of people can pull that off here or have the courage to do that. But I DM this brown guy named Gabe Gray, who's an actor who lives here in the, in the greater Toronto area. And I asked him for help and we never met before. And he was so cool and so, so friendly. He invited me over and he made me vegan food. And him and his girlfriend, Brooke, who's also a very talented singer, they were just really, really cool. And without them, I couldn't have made this. So shout out to them. If you have an essay you want to submit, an essay with a plot, a lot of people submit me things that are about their thoughts and their opinions on things, which is fine, but you need a plot, a sequence of events to kind of carry the story forward, to carry the reader with you. And if you don't have that, then it's just basically an opinion piece, which I can't really do much with. So submit whatever you want, but just as long as it has a plot. Email it to brownhistory1947 at gmail.com or just DM me uh, or you could get the contact information on the website brownhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.